In late 1997, 25-year-old Stephen Glass worked as a phone psychic. For the last couple of weeks, he had picked up the phone and lied. He told callers to get out of their abusive marriages. He dispensed impromptu financial advice. He read them their fates from a deck of casino playing cards. Or at least, that's what Stephen Glass said that he did in his article, Profits and Losses, published in the February 1998 issue of Harper's Magazine. His article kicked off with aplomb. Glass wrote, Men, women, college students and senior citizens hand over their credit cards to talk to me. I predict the future, chat with the dead and cure disease. I can cast spells, both good and bad, on boyfriends and bosses, friends and celebrities. Callers take note of everything I say. They follow my instructions. Like God, my powers seem endless. Unlike him, I'm pricey and don't guarantee results. This literary flourish made Glass a journalistic superstar before the age of 26. But Glass's articles were literary in another sense too. They were fictional. Stephen Glass made his name as a non-fiction journalist, but his stories were, by and large, made up. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm your host, Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Today, we begin the story of Stephen Glass, one of the most successful frauds in the history of American journalism. He fooled his friends and family, his fellow reporters and his editors until everything came tumbling down in May of 1998. Next week, in part two, we'll follow dogged New Republic editor Chuck Lane and a rival team of online journalists who finally pulled the rug out from underneath this young, talented con artist. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. The Glass family had a pedigree for greatness and Stephen saw himself as no exception. Equipped with a world-class education, he made it onto the staff of the prestigious DC magazine, The New Republic, by age 23. Over the course of two years, he published over 40 articles with that publication and had bylines at many others, including Slate, 
Rolling Stone, and Harper's. Quite a resume for anyone, let alone someone in their mid-twenties. However, as Glass rose through the ranks, he started to lace his articles with lies. Soon, those fictions overtook any and all truth in his career. Eventually, the lies became so big, they were impossible to maintain. But how was Stephen Glass able to peddle fiction as fact at so many prestigious publications? It began with a desire for prestige at any cost. Stephen Glass was born on September 15, 1972, in the affluent Chicago suburb of Highland Park. His father, Jeffrey, was a gastroenterologist, and his mother, Michelle, was a nurse. Like all parents in Highland Park, they taught Stephen and his younger brother, Michael, to strive for the best in life. Both boys attended the prestigious Highland Park High School. Through these halls walked future CEOs, politicians, lawyers, and surgeons. In the best sense, it encouraged exploration and ambition. In the worst, Highland Park High was a breeding ground for pride, jealousy, and anxiety. When Buzz Bissinger profiled Stephen Glass for Vanity Fair, he cited Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's book, The Good High School, for an account of the Highland Park neighborhood and school culture. Sarah was impressed with the school's stunning academic programs, but noted that values such as character and morality were sometimes little more than brushstrokes amidst the relentlessness of achievement. Highland Park parents, she found, expected children to be reading before kindergarten and were critical of teachers who stressed social psychological development. Parents lived vicariously through their children and saw Ivy League admissions as emblems of their own success. Recent studies drew a line between the materialistic or success-oriented upbringing and personal alienation later in life. A 2018 study conducted by psychologist Ying Sun at the Beijing Key Laboratory of Experimental Psychology questioned wealthy participants and found a correlation between demanding parents and future attachment issues. Without a strong social bond at the center of their life, participants responded that only external achievements would satisfy their families. While no study was ever conducted on the Highland Park crowd, it is not hard to conceive that similar results might be found. And the Glass family was highly representative of that mindset. Stephen stepped right into the pressure cooker as the president of Student Congress, regularly calling meetings to order. He gave hushed instruction backstage as a director at the renowned high school theater program. And in 1989, 17-year-old Stephen Glass concluded his career at Highland Park High by becoming vice president of the National Honor Society. Yet still, in this crowded arena, the spotlight always eluded him, instead falling upon Stephen's younger brother, Michael. If Stephen operated behind the scenes, both in the theater program and in his social life, Michael stood out on stage as the star performer. Aside from his acting credentials, 
He was more handsome and much more popular than his older brother, who came off as shy and effeminate. To make matters even worse, Michael was a national merit semi-finalist, an intellectual victory Stephen never achieved. Upon graduation, Michael was voted most likely to succeed. Such superlatives were never awarded to Stephen Glass. He never admitted it, but it hurt. It planted a seed of insecurity inside of him that grew to define the rest of his life. By 1990, that life pointed 18-year-old Glass toward the Ivy League and the University of Pennsylvania. Jeffrey and Michelle were proud of their boy, mostly because he had listened to their advice and enrolled in pre-med. That was the Glass family plan, to raise doctors, lawyers, and other high-level professionals. As the firstborn, Glass felt extreme pressure from his parents to follow them into the medical field. This pressure isn't exclusive to Highland Park. In experiments conducted at Stanford University, Dr. Mary Rothbart observed that mothers put, on average, more than twice as much pressure on a first-born child versus a second-born child to perform well on intelligence tasks. For eldest children, performance expectations are inherently higher, oftentimes without the parents even being aware of it. Glass's parents appear to be no exception. The specter of these expectations followed Glass to Penn. Although he put up a proud front for his roommate, Matthew Klein, he clearly suffered from insecurity. In Vanity Fair, Buzz Bissinger quoted Klein as saying, Stephen's shit wasn't always as together as everyone thought it was. But he always said he was doing fine, doing fine. At Penn, Glass felt divorced from the arts and literature that enriched his life in high school. The pre-med courses were torturous and time-consuming, but Glass began to spend more and more of his time working at the student newspaper, The Daily Pennsylvanian. Here, Glass found a reprieve from his academic struggles, but more importantly, he discovered a way to ensure his voice was heard. Glass switched majors to anthropology, but still spent most of his time in the offices of the Daily Pennsylvanian and followed the trail of journalism to DC. In 1994, he earned an internship at the New Republic. The journal had been a beacon of liberalism and political writing in DC since 1914. Glass couldn't believe his luck when he first walked through the doors. Ironically enough, his first major task at the paper was mere intern grunt work, fact-checking. The process was rigorous, as articles went through revision after revision, with each rewrite needing another round of fact-checking. However, Glass became very familiar with the process, and also with the reporters around the office. He ingratiated himself with anyone he could, letting them know his own career ambitions and his commitment to the work. Such an appeal worked very well on his younger colleagues, such as Hannah Rosen and John Chait. And in less than a year, his diligence and drive paid off. 
he received his first byline in December of 1995 as an editorial assistant. Within the next six months, Glass had published five more articles. All of them were glorified puff pieces and nothing outstanding. But the wheels were in motion, and Glass's presence in the office was recognized at the top. In 1996, the owner of the New Republic, Martin Peretz, approached 23-year-old Glass with an assignment. He jumped at the opportunity for his first cover story. Peretz was very involved with the day-to-day -day at the journal and always wanted to have his own ideas represented in its pages. The topic was far from a surefire hit. Peretz was interested in covering the changing demographics in the DC taxi industry as black American drivers gave way to immigrants from Asia and Africa. Taxis and the Meaning of Work was published in August of 1996. With this story, Glass finally achieved a splash of national recognition. Although Glass's style was still in its early stages, each successive draft of the article proved to the New Republic staff that they had someone special in their midst. Glass had a knack for finding characters and making them come to life on the page. There was Edward Murdoch, the aging black cab driver who had been in the business for over 60 years. Murdoch was described vividly in the following passage from Glass's article. Light jazz and the aroma of his English cigarettes create a soothing atmosphere. Calling cards are available in a dispenser on the dashboard. Murdoch wears a tweed jacket, tie, and fedora. He calls passengers sir or madam and engages them in polite conversation about politics, sports, or history. If they appear busy, he remains silent. Or take the grumpy Fred Turner, the taxi school instructor who taught his students with startlingly frank style. Turner dispensed personal hygiene advice, suggested which countries trainees should pretend to come from, and even showed them how to choose the sexiest music stations to guarantee big tips. These were larger-than-life figures, and Glass had seemingly plucked them out of a grab bag. It was almost as if he invented them. When Glass sat down at his keyboard to write, his main goal was to convey the ideas he had collected in the most interesting way possible. His fingers often moved faster than his mind as the article came to life in front of him on the glowing screen. Sometimes, Glass found himself adding details that weren't necessarily grounded in reality. Perhaps a line of dialogue, or a certain characteristic of a figure in the story. It is unclear what Glass may have fictionalized in his article about taxi drivers, but the formula used here matches the one he would employ throughout the next two years of his career. Now working full-time at the New Republic, Glass realized that the public was yearning for a new type of journalist too. In the wake of gonzo writers like Hunter S. Thompson, who implanted themselves within their own articles, Glass saw the opportunity to make a similar statement. 
His stories all included elements of societal critique and featured more human behavior and commentary than dry statistics. A new side of Stephen Glass emerged. Beneath his insecurity was a certain literary narcissism. The voice he utilized in his pieces always knew best and came across as highly moralizing. But this was just another defense mechanism against his personal insecurity. Instead of fixating on his own problems, Glass turned his judgment outward to society, effectively remaking himself in the image of the world-weary and sardonic modern journalist. And boy, did it work. Glass's funny, personality-driven stories soon became a fixture of the New Republic. He had broken free from the expectations of his family and hometown and found success in a way they had never imagined. He was a self-made man. Or so he thought. Glass published 40 more articles with the New Republic. He later admitted to fabricating material in over 27 of them. Some pieces were entirely fictional. With his fraud, Glass signed a devil's bargain. The only way to maintain his meteoric rise was to tell bigger and bolder lies. When we return, we'll meet the editor who became Glass's biggest champion, empowering him to make even greater embellishments to his fictional articles. And now, back to the story. In 1996, 24-year-old Stephen Glass met the man who had become the greatest, unwitting ally in his long journalistic con, Michael Kelly. Kelly took over as editor-in-chief of the New Republic in November of that year. Kelly was a writer's editor, meaning he would put his neck on the line for his staff. He believed that it was the writers who truly set the tone and objective of any journal, over the editor or even the owner. He was staunch in his beliefs and frequently found himself in conflict with the New Republic owner Martin Peretz and outside critics of the magazine. But to Stephen Glass, Kelly was a godsend. That November of 1996, Glass brought his new editor his most provocative story yet. It was a stinging profile on the Center for Science in the Public Interest and its leader, Michael Jacobson. The CSPI was an advocacy group for public health and nutrition, but Glass's story painted the organization in a harsh light. The killing blow of the piece was an anonymous witness account of Jacobson dining out at a Chinese restaurant. Apparently, the CSPI boss was demanding and rude toward the staff, insisting on a full list of ingredients for each item he ordered. The piece made him look like a fanatic and quite possibly a racist. Kelly loved it. He was immediately impressed with Glass's ability to build out narrative moments within his non-fiction and the seamless way he wrangled witness testimony. But perhaps more importantly, Kelly identified with Glass's anti-authoritarian streak. He wrote to serve the public, not shareholders or big business interests. 
and he wanted to nurture this instinct in glass. After the piece ran, Michael Jacobson and the CSPI heavily contested the story. Jacobson claimed the event at the Chinese restaurant in particular was complete fiction, and he wrote to Kelly to make his feelings clear, quote, The sheer quantity of errors in that article not only calls into question whether minimum standards of objective journalism were consciously disregarded, but makes an adequate response in limited space impossible. Sitting alone in his office, Michael Kelly stared at the accusation in his inbox. He considered his options. He could accuse Stephen Glass of libel, a serious charge. But was he really going to trust some corporate shill like Jacobson? That wasn't the kind of editor Kelly was. So he typed back his response to the head of CSPI, denying the premise that Glass had fictionalized the witness testimony of Jacobson at the restaurant. Mr. Jacobson, you have shown that you are willing to smear someone's professional reputation without any concern for truth. I await your apology to Stephen Glass and to this magazine. When Glass saw the lengths that Kelly went to in order to defend his integrity, the young writer was empowered. To return to con artist expert Maria Konnikova, her book also charts the key steps that a confidence man takes during a long con. After identifying a potential victim, the con artist works to build an empathetic rapport with them. Glass could see such a bridge forming between himself and Kelly. He thanked Kelly profusely for defending his honor and promised to only deliver the best stories for the New Republic. From this point on, Kelly saw Glass as a fearless writer and easily stepped into the role of protector. It was later revealed that the CSPI piece was Glass's first major act of journalistic fraud. And yet, it had been so easy to get away with. Plus, it was a means toward a more just end. Glass couldn't prove that Jacobson and the CSPI's practices were overzealous or racially biased, but he felt it was true. And that was enough. This became Glass's main tactic when constructing his fraudulent pieces. He made up small quotes and details to fill in the spaces of his actual reporting. It was fiction as added spice, and it often related to human interest or humor that enlivened the work. So Glass saw his fraudulent details as a necessary evil in an era of rock star journalism. And because the New Republic needed to stand out, Kelly welcomed Glass's style and encouraged him to pursue that provocative voice. The first unequivocal triumph of Stephen Glass arrived in the spring of 1997. Kelly agreed to send him undercover at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, held at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in DC. What he saw there would change the course of his career forever. But the question is, did Glass actually see what he reported? In a New Republic piece entitled Spring Breakdown, 
24-year-old Glass wrote, On the fourth floor of Washington's Omni Shoreham Hotel, eight young men sit facing each other on the edge of a pair of beds. They are all 20 or 21 and are enrolled in Midwestern colleges. Each is wearing a white or blue shirt with the top button unfastened, and each has his striped tie loosened. The mini bar is open, and empty little bottles of booze are scattered on the carpet. On the bed, a Gideon Bible, used earlier in the night to resolve an argument, is open to Exodus. In the bathroom, the tub is filled with ice and the remnants of three cases of Coors Light. The young men pass around a joint counterclockwise. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we don't know what we're doing, says Jason, a brown-haired, freckled boy from Iowa between puffs. We've got no mission. We've got no direction. Conservatives, we're like a guy who has to pee, lost in the desert, searching for a tree. With that lead-in, Glass constructed an image of young conservatives that young liberals love to hate. He implied as much when he followed up his opening paragraphs with a thesis of sorts. Quote, This is the face of young conservatism in 1997. Pissed off and pissed. Dejected, depressed, drunk and dumb. His profile reached a nefarious climax as the college conservatives brought back a drunken woman to their hotel suite to sexually taunt and humiliate her. Glass painted an apocalyptic contrast between the empty audiences at the conference speeches and the hotel rooms full of drugs and moral depravity. The article was, naturally, a sensation. The cutting observations of a young writer amongst his generation. He bore witness to their sins and despaired to his audience as these vile figures reveled in their undeserved privilege. The 1997 piece was all written with a touch of ironic detachment and vague amusement. It was clickbait before that word even existed. The uproar from CPAC was much larger than the one from the CPSI. David A. Keene, chairman of the American Conservative Union, furiously wrote to Michael Kelly about the various inaccuracies of Glass's article. Keene especially keyed into one detail. The rooms in the Omni Shoreham Hotel did not have minibars. This did give Kelly pause. He brought Glass into his office and relayed the same question to his young writer. Was there actually a minibar? Glass was apologetic. Maybe the small bottles were an imaginative leap, but there was definitely a mini-fridge in the hotel suite. Glass guaranteed it. He suggested to Kelly that the attendees might have rented and brought in their own. Kelly called up the Omni and confirmed that guests were allowed to bring in mini-fridges if they'd like. Glass stayed by Kelly's side like a guilty dog, ready to do anything to prove his innocence. And Kelly waved him off. Keane was upset because Glass had rightfully shown the debauchery of the hyper-conservative elite. There was no need for further concern. 
Just be careful about those imaginative leaps in detail in the future. Glass swore to his boss. He wrote nothing but the truth. Yet again, Glass outmaneuvered his superior by using a common trick of the con. He clearly presented himself as someone with very human flaws. Surprisingly, we often trust people who display both intelligence and human frailty simultaneously. This idea was examined in a 1966 study conducted by researchers Elliot Aronson, Ben Willeman, and Joanne Floyd, published in Psychonomic Science. The researchers presented four different videos for participants in which four students each interviewed for a position on the university trivia team. Two of the recorded students were highly competent, while the other two were clearly less so. What made the study, however, was the fact that one student from each group spilled a cup of coffee on themselves during the interview. When participants were asked which of the observed students was the most likable, the results were shockingly clear. The highly competent student who also spilled coffee was always the most liked. Since then, this study has been replicated many times and the results always paint the same portrait. We like to take a little imperfection in our human cup of coffee. By admitting to a smaller act of journalistic carelessness, Glass reframed himself as a nervous young writer instead of a guilty liar. He disguised his bigger lie inside of a smaller one, and Kelly bought it hook, line, and sinker. But as more people took notice of Glass, he had to manipulate a larger audience to hide his lies. After the publication of Spring Breakdown, Glass's cultural cachet hit an all-time high. He fielded assignment requests from mainstream and high-profile publications like Rolling Stone and George, managed by John F. Kennedy Jr. himself. By the end of 1997, Glass's freelance income nearly matched his New Republic salary of $50,000 a year. He was making double what most of his colleagues made, and he was only 25. But in the New Republic offices, his demeanor remained the same as always. Whenever someone needed coffee, Glass was the first on deck with a handout. He was warm, enjoyed indulging in office gossip, and was always self-deprecating. Whenever a senior writer checked out one of his pieces, Glass talked down about it, criticizing himself and his own skills. He weaponized his decade-long insecurity and made the elder scribes of the paper protective of him. Infamously, as colleague and friend Hannah Rosen wrote in a 2014 profile of Glass for The New Republic, his catchphrase was, Are you mad at me? His fellow reporters, like Rosen and John Chait, placated his concerns. They felt that he just didn't understand his own talent yet. Whether this was conscious or unconscious, 
Glass implicitly understood how to display just enough weakness to others in order to gain their affection and therefore their trust. But he was working them in the same way he worked Kelly. In Bissinger's Vanity Fair profile of Glass, former New Republic colleague Michael Crowley explained, the nickname for Steve was Hub. He was constantly on the make, constantly needing this steady supply of dish. He needed to have relationships with everyone. He just knew all the office gossip. He knew everything. That's why, to some extent, his reporting was credible. He knew everything inside the magazine. So why wouldn't he figure out what was going on in the world of his stories? Even as Kelly upped the rigor of the New Republic's fact-checking system, Stephen Glass knew how to work that too. His years as an intern gave him insider knowledge on what fact-checkers wanted from their writers. Glass always stayed late and made special notes to facilitate their process when checking his rough drafts. They were the grunts of the office, so if writers gave them a modicum of respect, it went a long way. However, this kindness disguised the fact that he was really just monitoring their process. If anything suspicious or questionable popped up in their fact-check, Glass leapt into action and addressed it as quickly as possible. Like always, Glass seemed helpful, but he was actually self-serving. But his style didn't impress everyone. There were some reporters at the New Republic who perceived his self-aware narration and heavy use of casual quotation as a stunt. These were people who had served time overseas covering atrocities and political coups and all sorts of serious business. These were people like fellow New Republic writer Chuck Lane. Glass's flamboyant characters had no place in the hard-hitting journalism that Lane practiced. So far, Glass's success had come about because Michael Kelly enjoyed this particular fresh style. But Kelly wasn't long for the halls of the New Republic. In September of 1997, Martin Peretz fired Michael Kelly. There had been one too many disputes where Kelly put his writers over the paper as a whole. Peretz handpicked the journal's new editor, none other than 36-year-old veteran reporter Chuck Lane. When we return, we'll see how Stephen Glass tried to adapt to the 21st century with a new editor at the helm of the New Republic and one not so predisposed to trust everything handed to him by his writers. And now, back to the story. When 36-year-old Chuck Lane was promoted to the helm of editor at the New Republic in September of 1997, 25-year-old Stephen Glass grew anxious. He implicitly understood that he was trusted when Kelly was in charge. Now, he needed to prove himself all over again to Lane. But this editor was an entirely different beast. Glass started accepting more freelance assignments from other outlets. This strategy was twofold. 
It would diffuse the concentration of his fictionalized reporting across different editors and fact-checkers. And it would also give Glass an out if he needed to escape this new regime at the New Republic. In October of 1997, Stephen Glass wrote The College Ranking Scam for Rolling Stone. The article profiled a number of universities that had supplied misleading data to the annual US News and World Report in order to place higher on the college rankings list. The piece mixed his usual fictional stylings with good old-fashioned plagiarism. Glass fictionalized a quote from a college admissions dean admitting to this scheme and then directly listed other examples of faulty data that had already been covered in the Wall Street Journal's expose on the college rankings system from over two years prior. Stephen Glass neglected to mention that he'd lifted the data from their reporting. From an outside perspective, this seems sloppy. In truth, Glass was simply overworked. Even after his massive success in journalism, his parents still held out hope that he would join a more respectable industry. So Glass began attending Georgetown Law School during his off hours. He burned the candle at both ends, trying to establish a footing in the world of law while struggling to churn out the provocative stories he had become known for. But law school was about as interesting to Glass as pre-med had been years earlier. It was a means towards satisfying his parents, not his own ego. The latter relied on the praise he received from his writing. He needed to broaden his journalistic horizons. That began in the 1997 Slate article Glass co-wrote with New Republic buddy Jonathan Chait about rising online bookseller Amazon. Fittingly, the piece was called Amazon.con. That piece lacked the color of Glass's more famous work, but it was his first brush with a new category of journalism, technology writing. Glass came across as a bit of a Luddite in the article, investing little faith in the future of Amazon's success. But he was keen enough to recognize how wide open the technology writing space was in mainstream media, and that young writers would be more highly sought than older ones for such articles. The tech world also provided Glass with plenty of larger-than-life characters and subjects. Big corporations, clueless executives, and young radicals. Finally, due to its emergent state, there was also a huge amount of anonymity in the internet world, and this gave Glass fresh inspiration for new lies. He began his search for the tech-centered version of Spring Breakdown. In the meantime, he continued to craft bold lies for his articles. January of 1998, Glass flat-out invented a company called HDT that supposedly flew paying customers to the middle of nowhere and discreetly oversaw their wilderness adventures. Ed Brown, a writer from Fortune magazine, personally wrote to Glass, questioning if the company actually existed. Glass dealt with this inquiry like he had with others before it, by ignoring it completely. 
If an accusation didn't reach an editor's inbox, Glass treated it like it didn't exist. So far, this strategy worked. Three months later, in April of 1998, Glass even fooled JFK Jr. himself by sending George an article that levied accusations against former presidential advisor Vernon Jordan. In an interview Glass later gave with 60 Minutes, Glass admitted, I said that he had behaved lecherously toward young women, and I provided anonymous or poorly identified individuals to say that against him. Glass's libel had leveled up. He wasn't targeting no-name 20-somethings anymore, and he knew it was dangerous. He also knew it was the only way to the top. Glass didn't have influential connections himself, but he realized he could lie his way into those too. It was a use of the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. By making powerful enemies, Glass would make more powerful friends. There was no turning back now. His lies at work had slowly transformed his entire life into fiction. His friendships with people like Rosen and Chait were built around a persona that wasn't actually his. And even after all of this success, his parents still thought his career as a journalist was a waste of time and that he needed to finish Georgetown Law as soon as possible. Glass couldn't let go of this conception of himself, or everything in his life would collapse. An increasing ability on the liar's part to continue building out their lies has been proven as a natural neurological response. Psychologist Tali Sharat from the University College London's Department of Experimental Psychology conducted a study that illustrated how the brain adapts to dishonesty. Sharat examined fMRI scans on participants as they lied to a control subject. Each participant was given a different incentive for their lie. Sometimes the lie benefited both the liar and the control subject. Sometimes the lie only benefited the control. And sometimes the lie only benefited the liar. Each liar in the study was given multiple lies to tell, so the researchers could watch the brain respond over multiple dishonest actions. The amygdala the structure of the brain related to emotional reaction lit up during the initial lie. However, with each additional lie, the amygdala showed less response on the fMRI readings. Sharat and her colleagues observed that the brain became less active more quickly when the lies mainly benefited the liar. This study seemed to prove that self-interest feeds dishonesty. In a post-study briefing covered by the website Health, Sharat was quoted as saying, Part of the emotional arousal we see when people lie is because of the conflict between how people see themselves and their actions. So I lie for self-benefit, but at the same time, it doesn't fit the way I want to view myself, which is as an honest person. It's possible that we learn from the arousal signal, 
with less emotional arousal, perhaps I'm less likely to see the act as incongruent with my own self-perception. This matches perfectly with the psychology of Stephen Glass. Highly insecure in his career and social life, Glass's own neurology had to adapt. The stories he told himself were just as convincing as the stories he told everyone else. And why would he stop? The checks kept rolling in from all of these publications. A publishing house or two had also reached out to Glass for potential book deals, and Vanity Fair reported that Glass was in touch with Hollywood producers as well. He thought he had broken the rules of the system and redefined them. He thought he could get away with this forever. But just a few yards away from Glass's cubicle, his downfall was brewing. Chuck Lane had no reason to distrust Glass, yet. But he was a far different editor than Michael Kelly. New Republic owner Martin Peretz wanted Lane in charge for a specific reason. He wasn't biased. This wasn't to say that Lane was a taskmaster or an unfair leader. However, he put the articles first, not the writers. He wanted exciting news, sure, but what he wanted more was veracity. He wasn't flash. He was old-school substance. And when he assumed the mantle at the New Republic, he found that his own writers didn't trust him as much as Kelly. They had all loved Kelly. Lane, on the other hand, had just been another face in the pitch meeting a few months ago. What had he done to earn this? Had he sold Kelly down the river for this position? There was a lot of gossip surrounding Lane's promotion at the Republic. Glass did nothing to counter this narrative and may have even encouraged it. Any division between Lane and Glass's friends like Hannah Rosen and John Chait was a useful one for the con artist. This was the environment at the paper in 1998 when Glass stumbled upon his next great subject. He had been searching for a way into the digital generation for over a year now, and he found it in the new socio-political figure of the hacker. Like Glass, hackers tended to be young geniuses who loved subverting the system that encircled them. So he came to Lane with a pitch. He wanted to cover the 1998 National Assembly of Hackers. Glass believed that if he infiltrated this space, as he had CPAC in 1997, he could ferret out a story that had never been told before. Lane had always been more cautious of Glass than others in the office. He found some of Glass's ingratiating and self-deprecating behavior to be theatrical. This didn't mean Glass wasn't to be trusted or that he wasn't a talented writer. But it was clear that the flashy Glass belonged to a different category than the more measured Lane. But perhaps that is what made him perfect for the assignment. After all, the New Republic needed to evolve. 
If it was to stay current, it needed technology stories, and it needed a young perspective on new developments. So Lane approved the pitch and sent Glass off to the assembly of hackers. Little did Lane know, this conference did not exist. It was yet another fantastical setting in the grand web of fiction that Glass had been spinning for years. This was beyond invented quotes and fabricated details. It was a complete hoax. Glass was taking his biggest risk yet, a move that would cement his place in American journalism. But when Stephen Glass returned with the great American editorial, he would quickly discover it was not the place he expected. After years of lies, his rivals were finally catching on and preparing the biggest expose of their careers. And unfortunately for Stephen Glass, their story was true. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of the story of Stephen Glass. We'll track his final story at the New Republic and how it fell apart under the scrutiny of Chuck Lane and a team of writers at Forbes Digital Outlet. Glass's career was about to reach its end, but he fought tooth and nail to construct one last grand lie to cover his tracks. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artists was written by Jack Bentel. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.